Today, today is an important day, a significant day. It's Pentecost. We don't often pay attention to that, to that day on a Christian calendar. I always wondered that as charismatics. Why would we not pay more attention to, to Pentecost? But I've been meditating on, you know, if, if Jesus was done, then why did it not all just end at the resurrection or ascension? The fact that it's not over says that Jesus is not done with his work on the world, in the world. And so what vessel did he choose to use for the continuation of his work? His church, his spirit-empowered church. And so we are the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue the work of Jesus in this world. I'm in a series on work. My hope is it's not been too boring. (laughs) Sounds like a bit of a boring topic, but it matters so deeply because I want us to understand what it means to be followers and disciples of Jesus. And as disciples of Jesus who live under his lordship, we bring the totality of our lives under his authority. Why would a third of our adult life and our work and vocation be excluded from that? But it actually matters deeply to Christ's work in this world. And so last couple of weeks I tried to lay the groundwork for the whole story of scripture and how our work fits within that story. Genesis 1 and 2 laying out what God's work is and his design for work is that he goes into the chaos, he goes into the wild wastelands, the formless and void, and he brings order and beauty. And his design for work is then given over to his co-workers, humans. That humans made in God's image, our work is to go into the wild and waste. Our work is to go into the formless and void and bring order and beauty, and God calls that work good. And to do that, Genesis 2.15 says that God put mankind in the garden to work it and keep it. And I spent quite a bit of time last week talking about work being hard work, that, that there's dignity in manual labor, but all work, we're to put our heart and soul into it, to work hard at it, working it. And keeping is a word that, that means to care for, to pay attention to, to protect, to guard, that we're supposed to put not just hard work, but to put care and attention into our work. That's how we go into the wild waste and bring order and beauty. And the good times were rolling for like maybe a chapter. Because <laughs> by chapter three, we have mankind deciding that we don't want to live under God's authority. We want to make moral judgments for ourselves. We want to define what is good and not good. And so we seized autonomy from God. We reached out for the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And it brought sin into the world. And the, the statements made from God about how our work environment is going to be that we're still called to work, but the environment is made more difficult by sin. My own sin, my own selfishness and stupidity, my own lack of competence, my own lack of discernment of what's good and bad, and everybody else as well. Everybody else struggled with their lack of discernment. And so we're, we're, we're working, but we're doing it in an environment that's made... Um, it's full of weeds, the, the weeds of people's sin, the weeds of people's lack of discernment of what's good and not good. But God seeds a seed of promise that there's going to be a time where evil will be vanquished. 
uh, that there's a deliverer, a wounded healer, a wounded victor, who's going to take the evil, destroy evil at its source at the cost of his own life. And so we fast forward to the future um, at the end of last week where it just showed you that, that what is, where, where is all this going? Where is God's taking this? God's taking it into new creation, new heavens and new earth where there is a garden city people who bring healing to the nations, that there's still work in new creation. And if that's the future, then what does it look like for our lives in the present to participate in that work, to participate in that mission or that plan and move God's mission forward in history? And we're going to zoom in to the present, and uh, I'm going to be in Colossians 3 for a little bit. And we're just going to read two verses, and I'm just going to kind of pull it right out of the chapter, but... In the fall, uh, late this summer, I'm going to start a series where our whole church will go through the book of Colossians together. And Colossians is just a magnificent piece of work um, that's very, it elevates the vision of Jesus that is captivating for me. And I want our church to get that kind of a vision of Jesus. So I'll I'll, I'll say more of these couple verses, but I want to just tie it in with our work a little bit right now. Colossians 3 Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, this is not a rhetorical question. I'm going to ask an easy church question and you can give me a simple church answer. Who do we work for? The Lord Jesus, Jesus, like, you know, a good church question has the good answer, Jesus. Like, if you can ask, I, I, I did youth for almost 10 years, and if you were ever going to ask a question, make sure that the answer was Jesus. <laughs> so I, I did it for you, all right? Um, who do we work for, according to the scripture? Jesus. Problem is, we don't believe that. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, we see it in scripture, and we're like, oh, I guess that's true. But do you see... That your boss, your manager, your leader is Jesus. That when you get up tomorrow and you go to work, you are working not for the company, not for the boss, not for the market, for Jesus. Most of us don't. I'd say many of us don't. Maybe all of us don't. None of us bats a thousand at this, okay? So like none of us are perfect at this. Even if we did have that revelation, we still have our bad days, okay? Like that's, that's fine, but as a whole, do we really think through this lens? I would say ho- holistically, no, we don't. And yet, being a follower of Jesus and a disciple of the Lord Jesus, he considers our work to be valuable enough to where he is our direct report, now, yeah, in the natural and natural organizations, you have people that you're a direct report of and maybe people who are a direct report of you and you manage and you have task lists and all that. But all of that is to be seen through the lens of Jesus as your boss, not just your manager, not just your oversight, not just your executive team, not just your board. Even if you own your own business, you're to see your business serves at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is your boss. What would a local economy, what would any one business look like if the majority of employees actually saw this on a daily basis? Or a local economy 
where we truly saw Jesus as in charge. That Jesus was our boss. And yet that's the statement Paul's making here is that if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus, your boss is Jesus. Regardless of who is your manager that particular, in that particular company or under the, in that particular position. Jesus is your boss. Okay, and then if Jesus is your boss, what work qualifies as working for him? Whatever. Whatever you do. Whatever you do, when you work for Jesus, that's the work of the Lord. And I know for certain we don't believe that. We may want to, but we got to actually live our beliefs, not just mentally ascend to them. But what, what, so if we actually believe this, that means if I brought up here a bank teller, a barista, a missionary, a landscaper, a real estate agent, and a pastor, and just had them as a panel, and I had you look at this panel and say, which of these people are doing the Lord's work? Who would it be? (laughs) You're really smart in the moment right now. It would be all of them. That's the right answer. But what do we actually think? What we actually think is, well, the missionary and pastor are doing the Lord's work. Everybody else is just kind of doing a day job. Hopefully they lead a life group or serve on a grow team. Then they'll be doing the Lord's work. But their job, that just, that doesn't mean much. And yet, according to the scripture, Jesus does not see a single difference between a barista making coffee with Jesus as her boss or a missionary giving her life on the mission field. Jesus sees no difference. Neither are glorifying Jesus more than the other. But we don't think that. You don't go through... The Walmart checkout line, unless it's self-checkout. Then you look at the little camera looking back and you're like, hey, you're doing the Lord's work. We don't look at the cashier and go, this person's doing the Lord's work. This is the Lord's work. We don't go into our HR department and go, you're doing the Lord's work. (laughs) Personal feelings aside. There's, there's no difference between pastoring or accounting, according to Jesus, if both work for the Lord. As a matter of fact, actually, to even maybe surprise you a little bit, if the landscaper is working for Jesus, but the pastor is building their own platform, not working for Jesus, but working for self, Jesus is more glorified in the landscaper than the pastor. None of us are doing insignificant work in our day job if done working for Jesus. Stocking shelves on the midnight shift at Walmart, working for Jesus is as much glorifying to the Lord as is pastoring. Bow your heads and close your eyes. (laughs) No. That's what it's saying, okay? Okay, and if you're working for Jesus and whatever you're doing is for Jesus, don't answer this one, okay? It's not rhetorical. There is an answer, but just don't answer it. What are you working for? 
Now, next time I'll talk about maybe what qualifies as, as, uh, as work we need to engage in. And one of, the, one of the ways we would look into that is saying that our work needs to provide for us. Like that's an important part of work is to provide. Provide for yourself and those under your care with the hope of surplus so that you can care for others. So yes, that's, that's a part of it. You're working for a paycheck. But what, according to Paul, working for Jesus, what are you working for? The inheritance. Well, what in the world is that? Because you could just be reading that and going, working, working for inheritance, and you just move on, and it's like, you don't know what that means. So this is where you just got to learn Paul and Paul's use of language. Paul uses the word inheritance as this, this sort of one-word summation of a big idea. Okay, and it's the idea of the story of, if you're in ancient Israel... God makes a promise to Abraham for a certain piece of real estate, land. That's the promised land as an inheritance, okay? Well, the family of Abraham grows, finds themselves in Egypt, and then in slavery in Egypt, and they're unable to live in their inheritance, and it isn't just the land, it's the ability to work and worship in a, in a freedom that glorifies God. That's what that land represents. It isn't just land. It's, it's, the, it's the ability to work and worship in a way that glorifies their God. Well, they're not unable to do that in slavery, so God redeems them and brings them into their land through a long story of lots of bumps and bruises. But even in the land, there's a sense where they're not living in this inheritance. And so they disobey, and after 500 or 800 years or so, they go off into exile. But even they come back in 70 years, and even back in the land, they're like, there still is a sense where we're not living out what the inheritance really is. And what Paul comes around and does is he talks about that in Jesus, it isn't just that we get this you know, sweet piece of real estate in the Middle Middle East, it's actually we get all of creation redeemed and restored in resurrection, new creation. And so new creation, new heavens and new earth is Paul riffing off of this Old Testament story that's pointing in a larger direction that new creation is our inheritance. New heavens and new earth is our inheritance. And so he says that when you work for Jesus, Whatever you do, digging ditches or balancing checkbooks or being a stay-at-home mom, whatever you do, you're working for an inheritance. Your work actually can make it into eternity. Your work can outlive this world. And I'm talking about any work Whatever you do, not just the special spiritual stuff. Okay. So let me talk a little bit about resurrection because we got to get an understanding of, of what this means. 1 Corinthians 15 is sort of Paul's grand chapter on resurrection and understanding the gospel and where all this is headed because I want you to see your place in this story. Paul wants us to see our place in the story that working for Jesus, all work qualifies if we work for him, unless it's dehumanizing. Dehumanizing work would be work that doesn't qualify, like enslaving people. That's not good work. 
Um, like any job qualifies as work for the Lord, the Lord's work, if we serve the Lord Jesus in that work. And that work makes it into the inheritance, into new creation. Uh, Colossians 1 says that it is the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance in the saints in life. That like we haven't had to qualify ourselves to be partakers of that inheritance. We haven't had to do it ourselves. God qualifies us to be participants in that inheritance. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to, sh- to see this about resurrection and then we'll see how our work ties into it. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we'll just start reading the chapter. There's 58 verses in this chapter, so we're not doing a verse-by-verse exposition. (laughs) That's a long time. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the gospel. Um, Next spring, I'm going to do a series on the gospel and understanding what the gospel means and what scriptures say the gospel is. So whatever, whatever he's about to say is, is his definition of the gospel, because sometimes we think we know that, but do we? Do we really know what the gospel is? The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul's saying about the gospel that he's not just making it up. He received this gospel and he's passing it on as the most important thing. Like of all the things he says, like I've already done this, but I'm just reminding you of everything I wanted to tell you and teach you, this was number one. Like this was the most important thing. What is it? Whatever it is, it's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Usually in modern America, we just push stop right there and go, that's it. Died for our sins. That's the gospel. And it's part of it. But he goes on. That he was buried. That he was raised. This is the climax and centerpiece of the gospel. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And just to prove it, he's, this is Paul writing to an, a, a church in Corinth. And that he appeared to Peter or Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And listen, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. Uh, Some have fallen asleep. Notice that he doesn't say they've died. That they've fallen asleep. He's like, listen, Christ has been raised from the dead. It wasn't just a spiritual experience. It wasn't just a new philosophy. He was raised from the dead and he appeared to all these people. And you need to go ask him because they saw it. Then he appeared to James, which was his half-brother. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, man, like I was just born too late. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why is he putting so much emphasis on this? Because apparently, and you'll see by the next place I'll read. Apparently in Corinth, they like the idea of, you know, forgiveness of sins and all that stuff, but this whole resurrection of the dead, they just didn't believe it. They didn't believe, they didn't feel like that was necessary in this whole scheme, uh, in their whole life. It just, it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It's crazy. And so Paul's writing this, and then look at verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And jump down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's pointless. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean a thing. And you're still in your sins. So apparently Christ dying for our sins, according to the scriptures, is, it's necessary that he was raised from the dead. Otherwise, it was just a bad ending to an otherwise good story. Jesus had a good run at it, but man, he died like everybody else dies. The powers that be just crushed the innocent ones. Bummer for him. But no, he's been raised from the dead. And then look, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're gone too. Hopeless, gone, done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, if our only hope in Jesus is, is just this life, this is terrible. You just might as well pity us because we're just, we're lame. And what we have right now going on in our world is clashes of worldviews. And there's very powerful voices, very angry voices whose whole spectrum, whose whole perspective and worldview is based on the only thing we do is this life. This is it. This is our one and only shot. And so we need to crush anybody that would oppose us. And he's like, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. First fruits implies what? There's other fruits. There's more coming. Of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, quick review on some things I've said in other times and places. And if, it's, if you haven't heard me talk about this, I guarantee we'll talk about this a bunch more times. So just let me just keep you in a certain perspective. If your worldview is seeing the cosmos as heaven and earth, as far apart, distant realities, and heaven is way over here, and earth is way down here, and God is way up there, and we are really terrible all down here, um, full of sin and death and just destruction, and the best that can happen is God fly from over in heaven and come to earth just to get us to escape out of earth and into heaven— if that's your worldview, first of all, that's not a biblical worldview. That comes from Greek philosophy as early as Plato, three, four hundred years before Jesus. This is how the Greeks saw the world. And that there was a lot of Christians through various points in church history that adapted more from Greek philosophy than Jewish theology of the cosmos. It's not biblical. This is not how the scriptures set up our world. And if you see scriptures through this lens, you're going to get a lot wrong. One part of that would be your work. Your work, if this is the way the cosmos are set up, your work makes absolutely no sense. It's pointless. The, be the best you can do with your work is make a lot of money. Just enough to survive. And if you're lucky, be generous. That's the whole point of your work. Your work is, because this worldview 
thinks that God's one day just going to wad earth up in the trash and throw it away. And so any work I do in this, on this planet is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to do anything. It doesn't mean anything. Because it can't make it if God's just going to wad this up and throw it in the trash. Safe to say, this is not the way the scriptures talk about heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are together. And we looked at this last week, so very quick review on that. Heaven and earth are overlapping, and we begin uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 with a garden. And this garden, this garden of Eden, is the place where heaven touches earth. And mankind is made from the dust of the ground and the divine breath of God. And so this, this radical, crazy combination of dust and divine breath are colliding there in the Garden of Eden. And the idea is to take that garden, to take that piece of heaven and spread it out to the rest of the world. But as we saw, mankind just screwed that up and unleashed sin and death into the world. And we did our best to try to shove God out of this world, to do it ourselves. But the story of Scripture shows that we just cannot successfully successfully get God out of this world. And so... God enters into this world in the person of Jesus and Jesus becomes that touching point of heaven and earth. That Jesus comes in the character and as the word of God and reveals what God is really like but not as a pretend human, as a real human. But if God is present to this world, he has to deal with the sin and the death and the corruption of this world. So what he does is he takes it all into himself on the cross. And in the cross, he absorbs all the sin and all the death from our sin that has been unleashed into this world. And now, because he's been raised from the dead, our sin and death has been dealt with. And sin and death do not have the final word. And so now, what we need because of Jesus is a transformation. And Jesus raised from the dead is the new prototype, as in Adam all die. Adam was the old prototype that messed this whole thing up. But now in Christ, all shall be made alive. That those who are in Christ are part of another set of fruits that Christ was the first fruits. Simply to say, what God did for Jesus on Easter morning he will do for all of us who are in Christ. And what God did for Jesus on Easter morning, he will do with his whole creation. Not destroy it and wad it up in the trash and throw it away, but radically transform it. Radically transform to be that connection of heaven and earth. And our work plays a part in this, but we gotta see this transformation first. So what does that look like? Verse 50, we skipped a whole lot in the middle uh, that I mean, if you read First Corinthians 15, there's some stuff that's just flat incredible and some stuff that's just super confusing. Um, but going to the end, hopefully we'll see the good stuff. Verse 50, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, see, flesh and blood, anything physical, it's just bad and God's done with it. No, no, not, not, don't, not, not so fast. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. See, the flesh and blood it's referring to is that things that are still connected to sin and death, as it is, cannot fully function in new heaven, new creation. And so all that is that's been touched by sin and death has to be transformed. 
And so it isn't that we all shall be done rid of and separated and now our spirits are away. No, we all need to be changed. Look at this. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Well, when's that going to be? In the end. Well, when's the end? It's the end. It's when it's all over. It's the same as like, well, well, when was the beginning? It was in the beginning. When was that? In the beginning. Well, when's the end? When it's all over. At the end. Well, when's that? At the end. That could be today. Praise God. It could be a millennia from now. Great. It's going to happen. The end's going to happen. Just as much as there was a beginning, there will be an end. When's that going to be? People get all crazy about this, and we got to stop. Just stop. You're wasting your energy, okay? We already read Acts 2. Peter quotes Joel. Joel, hundreds of years before then, was like, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Peter goes, hey, guys, that's the day. And that was 2,000 years ago, roughly. Hit or miss, you know, two or three decades we're in the latest of the last days, okay? Yes, are we in the last days? Absolutely, the very latest of them. Is it gonna be the end? I don't know, but when it ends, it'll end. When's that? In the end. It's just gonna happen, okay? So just let's just chill and be okay with the fact that we have no clue. <laughs> Anyone who says they're certain, they are selling you something. For the trumpet will sound sometime in the end and the dead will be raised. The dead will be raised. Not the dead will fly away or the living will fly away. No, the dead will be raised imperishable and we, those who remain, shall be changed, transformed. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Why? Because flesh and blood that's been tainted by sin and death can't inherit the kingdom of God. So that which is flesh and blood needs to be not removed, but changed, transformed. And, it, and whatever it is, it is a transformation of this body. And this is where people have a lot of strong opinions, and most of them aren't biblical. If you're going to have a strong opinion, make sure it's biblical, okay? And even then, like, realize we are easily prone to mistakes and misinterpretations. But it's very clear that it is this body that gets transformed in resurrection. My new body is not like sitting in a safety or a safe, you know, storage in heaven waiting on me to just get rid of this body and put on the upgrade. That, anal that, that analogy didn't land, did it? It is this body that needs transformed. And the new body is a transformation of this body. That's, that's very clearly what it's saying. And so when we bury someone at a funeral, I've had to help families kind of understand this. God's not done with that body. 
We think of it, oh, we just shed it and it's just gone. And it's... Even if they've been dead so long they've turned to dust, God still takes the molecules of the dust and transforms it. Okay? Even what we do post-mortem with our body matters. It's a witness. That God's not done with that body. And I know there's many people that's like, you know what? I kind of want to be done with this body. It's kind of sickly and a little ugly. Am I the only one that's not that? Okay. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't want this body. Well, what if that body, your body, had no hint of sin or death connected to it? None whatsoever. No sin, no death, no corruption. It is exactly as God created it to be. That's the kind of transformation we're talking about. A kind of body that sin or death or corruption or sickness can't, it can't get, it has no place in, in it. It is such a fundamental transformation that it is, it, it is the same as Jesus' resurrected body. I mean, I like the idea of being able to go through walls and stuff like Jesus did. Somehow he could have a real body, eat real fish, and still go through walls. I'm looking forward to teleportation. It's a real deal, man. It's a real deal. So there's transformation coming. Resurrection. And then look at this, verse 4. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. So when this resurrection happens, when the trumpet sounds, boom, transformation, change. And the, the mortal puts on the immortality, the perishable puts on imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. Or verse 55, um, what Hosea says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? These verses, got, I, got, I had to get real with the Lord. It was 10 years ago. January 17th, 2010. I still consider it the worst day of my life. It was the day that our, my wife and I miscarried our first baby. Our first son. And it was the first time death really hit me hard. I'd seen my grandparents die. Uh, and I, I wasn't super close to them. And so it was sad but like I didn't consider it an injustice. They're, they were, they were, it was a, they were older. It was time. Uh, I had a close friend um, who was 84 when he passed away uh, two years earlier. And, and it was sad and I wept. But I didn't like, I really had, didn't have to get a grip on God's justice. Losing a baby I needed to understand justice. I needed to understand how God's going to make this right. Because to me personally, and you can disagree with me on this, me personally, I did not find it to be comfort knowing that my son was just in the presence of the Lord. That was nice, but I can't say that I was comforted by that because here I experienced a loss. He's okay. We experienced a loss. That's injustice. Death won. And I knew Jesus was raised from the dead, so death doesn't have the final word, so this has got to make sense to me. And I went on a, about a six-month journey of wrestling with this. And the Lord took me to this, 
these statements here. And I spent a long time with these verses in understanding how the victory at the end, look at, look at verse 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But, verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That there is an end coming and I don't know when it is. It could be soon. It could be, I don't know, it could be 100,000 years from now. I don't know. But whatever that end is at the resurrection, this is in the twinkling of an eye, as fast as it takes your eyelids to blink, changed. And my son, who never breathed fresh air, that death won, will receive an imperishable body receive a, resur- a resurrected body because right now he doesn't have a body but we receive a resurrected body a transformation of his body and will live in new creation the life that was robbed from him by death years ago and will live as a human being in new heavens in new earth the life that was stolen from him. And that victory is so overwhelming, not just for my son, but for all of us who've gotten that close to death, have experienced some death in our lives. That victory will be so overwhelming that what this scripture says is it so eclipses the defeat of death that we actually look back at death and taunt death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That the victory over death is so victorious that we don't even really see how death won in the past. And we taunt death. Death, where is your victory? You thought you won, but you won nothing. That that victory is so immense and so profound that we're going to stare death in the face and say, you won nothing. That my son, who never breathed fresh air, that never walked, never talked, never experienced human existence, is going to be able to taunt death and say, you won nothing. You won nothing. That's what that victory is and it happens like that whenever the end is. That right now in the present when we don't know when that future is what we do is we hope. We see that history's moving in that direction and though I experience a loss I can mourn that loss. I can be sorrowful for that loss because it looks like death won that day and we mourn people who pass away but with hope because in this life is not our only hope. Because if our only hope was in this life, we, would be, we should be pitied because we're pretty, we're pretty messed up. But we don't have hope in this life only. There is hope of resurrection. And there's somehow, I don't know how. I don't know what it's gonna look like exactly. But I do believe what scripture says, that it will be so victorious and be given to me, not because I've done anything, but because thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That just by faith in Jesus, I experience that victory and it'll be so overwhelming that I'll, I'll look at death and taunt death. And if you look at the news right now, 
All that's going on. Racial injustice and the chaos that has ensued because of it. It looks like death's winning. A pandemic that shut down a global economy. It looks like death's winning. I mean, how many deaths do we look at the tally number daily? And yet we're sitting here daily looking at the, the, the death numbers. It looks like death's winning, right? But somehow the victory of resurrection will be as triumphant as what Easter was. Jesus already defeated death as the first fruits. Meaning there will be more fruits. And you and I get that victory by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what would we do if that's the truth, if that's what's going to happen, and it's, it's a promise that we have, if that's what's going to happen, well, then what do we do in the present? Because you might say, well, if that's going to happen, I'm chilling out. Vacation time. I don't have to care about anything. Verse 58. Therefore, because we're going to have this victory, because that victory will be so overwhelming, we'll taunt death. Therefore, be my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing or being assured that your labor is not in vain. Well, if we didn't connect that to Colossians, you might think that the work of the Lord is all that spiritual stuff you do. Getting people saved, serving in a life group being on a grow team, serving at the food bank. That's the work of the Lord. No. According to Colossians, the work of the Lord is your day job. Your day job, when you work for Jesus, is not in vain. Your work is moving that mission forward. Your work is going to make, when it's working for the Lord, that work is going to make it in resurrection, in new heavens, in new earth. And that might sound unbelievable. Well, you know, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's kind of unbelievable too. And he became the first fruits of what God's going to do for all of us in Christ Jesus. And so what do we do now? We go to work. And we know that our labor is not in vain. It actually moves God's new creation forward. It moves his mission forward. We become vessels of Jesus that bring heaven to earth in our day jobs. Not just in the spiritual stuff. Yeah, that too. But when you go to work, you are the vessel of heaven on earth and you move the new creation mission forward every time you go to work for Jesus. And if you fast forward all the way to the end, we read it last week, but it's it's worth repeating. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, you might read that and go, oh, well, it, God crumbled it up and threw it in the trash. No, it, 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 in a blink of an eye, a twinkling of an eye, the trump sound, and all was changed. That heaven and earth was changed, transformed, made new. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death shall be no more. Everything that sin and death has touched, from miscarriages to terrorism, changed. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So what's our work? Making all things new. Not all new things. God's not making all new things. God's making all things new. He's making you and I new. And our work is to just usher that along through being a a fantastic cashier who puts our heart and soul into our job because we're working not for the head cashier, but Jesus. And that work for Jesus actually moves the new creation mission forward. That your landscaping, if you're a landscaper, your landscaping, when you go to work and you put your heart and soul into your job, and you work for Jesus, that moves his new creation mission forward. Maybe you're a teacher. The teaching of children and shaping their minds, that moves God's new creation forward. Your stay-at-home mom, it moves God's new creation mission forward when we do that. So this is why in today's age, we, we don't need to look so much at the news because what we see is temporal. 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to things that are seen, for the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that can't be seen with the natural eye, those things are eternal. And you and I need to continue to invite the work of Jesus in us and the ongoing work of transformation in us and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon us so that we can be people on mission people in Christ bringing heaven to earth working for Jesus in Jesus by the power of Jesus that's how our day to day work moves Jesus' mission forward and if none of it makes sense well it's a mystery that's what Paul said but I do believe it's true and I'm going to live as if it is true I just hope that Many of us believe it to be true because it is. And there's going to be a day where we all see it clearly. But until then, we see through a glass darkly. We move one step at a time, trusting Jesus one step at a time and going to work in whatever strange way, listening to Jesus, recognizing that we work for Jesus. And somehow what you do tomorrow at work is moving Jesus' new creation mission forward. Gets us one step closer to the end. Which is why we have to remain humble and open to the work of Jesus in us. It's because we're just not that awesome. (laughs) 
we're in such desperate need of Jesus. We get distracted and selfish. We need the forgiveness he gives. We need the grace in our weaknesses. We need the power when we are just full of mistakes and screw-ups. So if you just bow your head with me.